good morning. Uh, extend my welcome to you as well. Uh, we are working our way through a few of the Psalms uh, this summer, the latter part of this summer. And this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 91. So if you would turn there in the Bible that's in the pew or your own Bible, Psalm 91, it's on page 497 in the pew Bible. I'm going to ask you to keep handy uh, your Bibles because uh, uh, something a bit different that we're going to look at one or two New Testament passages, and I'm not just going to refer to them, but I'd like for us to turn to them uh, because so much of our honest dealing with this psalm will be, how does it look to us in the New Testament period? How do we relate to these uh, promises that have no qualifications whatsoever, and we experience life that's very different, it seems like, in many ways than the way this psalm describes it. So how do we get at this? And so reading a couple of New Testament passages hopefully will give us some clarity there. Psalm 91 He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler that may be rampart. Literally, encircling protection, the word buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right side, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. And then God speaks. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's the reading of God's holy, glorious word. Let us pray. Lord, we pray with the psalmist, open up my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. O Lord, we utterly depend upon your Holy Spirit Uh, to fix this word in our hearts, to transform us, to make us all the more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. 
Uh, as an introduction this morning, I want to take us again to the Psalms uh, as a kind of overview of, of what uh, the Psalms are here for and how we should use them in our lives. I think we, we began our series with this, but I think it's good to keep uh, laying out other aspects of the Psalms in a kind of introductory way. So that's uh, and there, there's two things I want to mention in talking about the Psalms as a whole is that they are a response to God and their revelation of God. And it's an unusual combination, a response to God, but at the same time a revelation of God. The Psalms are not so much, as one scholar says, a record of the writers seeking out God, but the response to God's seeking out of them. And so it's a great choir of witnesses to the goodness and greatness and sometimes mystery of God and his ways. And it is remarkable that God has accepted these words and he has put them as a part of his word for us. So in this, you see, the Bible doesn't assume that we know and uh, assumes that we do not know instinctively how to talk with God. Okay, maybe that's good news. Bible doesn't scold you for that. It assumes you, Darwin, you don't really know what you're doing in this area. Right. Let, let us help you here. And so the, the we need help. The, the Psalms assume. And so the Psalms actually set forth the response that God is looking for in worship and in your everyday life. They speak from God, showing us how to speak to God. And that's encouraging that we would welcome this into our lives to say, well, I don't know how to pray. Well, uh, you know, he's got 150 th- examples of things that you can say to God, right? 150 examples of things you can say to God. That's what the scripture is. Athanasius wrote this. Most of the scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us, right? And so we're to identify with the psalmists as we're able by God's grace to enter these psalms. Sometimes we're even in a different place emotionally or spiritually, but still the psalms can help us understand ourselves and help us understand God's people. So our our desire is to inhabit the passion and enthusiasm of the praises and thanksgiving of the psalm uh, to Inhabit the freedom of their complaints and protests, which are shocking to us at, at times. You, you read through the Psalms, you say, I didn't know you could talk to God like this. It, it's just surprising. And that's not like for you to say, gosh, those people were messed up. It's to think, maybe I'm messed up that I don't say those things to God at times, right? Maybe I don't believe in God's grace so that I would expect it and be frustrated when it's not there. You know, those kinds of things. So the Psalms examine us, examine our motives, examine our hearts, 
Luther says it's given so that we can adapt and adjust our minds and feelings so that they are in accord with the sense of the Psalms. So you need to ask yourself, as I need to ask myself, have, do I accept the invitation of the Psalms to learn from their teaching? Uh, one commentator <clears throat> says this, the Psalm, Golden Gay, I lost his name suddenly. Golden Gay says, the Psalms make it possible to say things that are un, otherwise unsayable. I would put it this way, they enable us to think things about God that we might not have ever thought, but we need to think, right? To say things about God, to believe things about God, to feel things uh, about God. And it's not only this response, but it's a response to, as I said, the revelation of God. And so as you enter into their response the revelation of the one that they're responding to breaks out. That's why it's poetry. The beauty of the language is trying to scale the beauty of the God it describes. I mean, what else could it be but, you know, poetry, the beauty and measure and rhythm of poetry. There are constant comparisons and descriptions and metaphors and similes. It's, as one said, a verbal portrait gallery of God. Or you might call it, the the Psalms take you by the hand uh, or take you in a car ride to the various vistas to look out over the mountains of God's majesty. That's, That's what the Psalms are doing. And and, the, and this poetry helps these visions of God to go deep within us. This poetry helps to inscribe in our hearts, uh, to plant in our hearts, for, for these visions of God to stick and take hold of our hearts. You know, the Psalms are trying to get you to notice God, to get you to acknowledge God, to recognize Him, to know Him, to admire Him and adore Him and trust Him and give yourself up to Him. So here are the Psalms before us. Just a reminder, I hope that this study doesn't, uh, you know, come and go and, and it doesn't transform your relationship to this book of the Bible. Uh, I think at best it should be a daily relationship to the Psalms. Whatever else you're reading in Scripture, uh, the Psalms should be central. Now, uh, I'm going to reverse our outline uh, because it, it says that uh, the, first, the first point has to do with the spiritual and physical in this creation, and the next one, the spiritual and physical in the new creation. I'm going to take the second one first because it really becomes the vision for the second. It becomes our hope to live out in this world. Now, what's interesting about the Old Testament is that it is a picture in so many respects of the final blessing that God will bring upon earth. I mean, you can see this even in the, uh, the, the, the conquering of Canaan itself, which, as one theologian described it, is an in, kind of an invasion of the final judgment. 
So picture Canaan as the world and the people of God are delivered and they inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth and the wicked are removed from the earth. So you see, it's a little paradigm. It's a little preview, a picture of what will happen in the final day when God brings judgment on the earth. And all the, those who have refused uh, this God will be judged even as they were. And that's why uh, Paul can say in Romans 4, a kind of surprising statement. He says uh, that Abraham believed, knew that he was the heir of not Canaan, but the world, the cosmos, everything. So that the inheritance of Canaan is a picture of our final inheritance in the new creation. And even life in the land was to reflect or, or in some ways anticipate. That's why it was so physically oriented. That is, the blessings were so physically oriented. You might think even of Jesus when he came and all these people were healed and transformed and demons cast out in such a dramatic way. It wasn't so much to say, hey, you're going to do all these things exactly like this. It was a statement that the new creation has come and you're getting a little taste for how all demonic activity will be expelled in the final day. Even in, the, in, in one person being healed physically, even though that person would, you know, eventually die in this world, it was a statement of there will be absolute full healing in every way when, the new, covenant, when the, the new creation breaks in. And so in some ways, uh, the Old Testament uh, previewed this and the blessings tended to be focused on the physical and the outward in, in a way that, that in some ways are not there in the New Testament. And so we, we have to interpret the, these things in, in, in a way that is in keeping with what uh, we experience in this world. But you see these promises. Um, it, it, for instance, when it says... He will, that, that no evil, you see, in, uh, will come near you. No plague will come near. Not even close. You know, you know can you get, and, and a lot of this is, is, is stated in a warfare, a kind of the context of warfare where there are enemies, there's battle, and pestilence and disease is a terrible part of war and certainly was in those days. And so in the midst of the warfare, in the midst of 10,000 falling around you, you will stand. And this pestilence which attacks, it's not going to come to you. And there's no qualification whatsoever. It's not like, sometimes, yeah, sometimes, no. You know, there's nothing like that. It's just absolute. I will deliver him. I will protect him. I will answer him. I will rescue him. So for those who were faithful in the Old Testament, and there are periods of time when, and they sadly were short, but when the periods of time existed where the king was faithful and the people were largely faithful, then we see the blessings that were pronounced in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that just break out and flourish. 
as an indication, as an announcement that Yahweh is in the land and these are his people. You can see it. You see the evidence of it. You see these things even back in the patriarchs as their presence with others would bring physical blessings to them. It was a way to say, uh, to, to visibly show the blessing uh, that God gave his people and would give others through them. So what does he protect us from? Every kind of danger. You name it, I'll protect you from it. Unlimited warranty, insurance policy, we cover everything. And we know a lot of stuff you hadn't even thought of. We cover it. All right. That's the, that's the sense here. But we believe that these all will be fulfilled precisely and not just fulfilled, but the top will blown, be blown out of them. Like the horizon of this psalm bursts into something that he couldn't have imagined, really, in the revelation of the New Testament. So that all of these things, right down to the last word of protection, of no evil coming near you, of you standing forever, of you having a long, satisfying life, of you enjoying the riches of his salvation, of you being rescued and honored... All of these things, we say, in Christ Jesus, will be yours and are yours. And that's why Paul can, and you've heard me say it again and again, I never tire of saying it, at the end of 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, life or death, this world, and that, everything is yours. Everything. You name it. Just name it. <laughs> name whatever. Yours. Yeah, you look, you, you know, you're going through a, uh, you, you're going through a, a sale, you're going through a, a silent auction and, and you're looking, looking at the tags, you know, who did this, who did that? And you look at the tags of everything in this world, got your name on it. You're, you're the owner because you're co-heir with Jesus Christ. That's who you are. Will Jesus inherit everything? You have no doubt about that, right? M- me either. But I do question whether I get to participate, but we do. We will be set on high with him forever and ever. And we could, we could talk so much about the new creation. We could talk so much about the transformation of this world, what it will be like for us to love one another perfectly, uh, for us to, as I've said many times to Tom and others, to love one another like Katie Crow loves when she runs across this stage and she's, her face is lit up and to just go hug and hi, you say hi. Or like Katie, when she was running her four by 100 in the uh, Special Olympics, as she rounds the curve and you're filming her, this is her. <laughs> she cared about winning. She didn't care about anything. She just cared. There are people up there that I love. That's the most important thing right now. Wouldn't it be amazing for that to be your heart? I'm telling you, this little precious girl is kind of tiny little vision of one part of the new creation. I thank God for her. So there's so much to be said, so much to be said for how our gifts will be manifested or and fully used and and the work that we'll have to do. Reigning is not 
sitting on your duff, right? Reigning. Ask any king, ask any president, ask any leader, right? Going to be full-time, glorious work. We, we will be wrapped. There's a book called Wrapped, and it studies what that condition, when you get into something and you kind of lose track of everything and you just pour yourself into it. That's one word we maybe could call the new creation, wrapped. <laughs> wrapped forever in God, in one another, in his creation it's hard to even describe it. So I, I, I want you to think of Psalm 91, no holes barred as to the final spiritual and the final physical uh, uh, fulfillment of all of these promises. And not just fulfillment, but as I said, the horizons break down and, and it goes beyond imagination. But also, I want to... Bring these promises that many times are focused in a physical way to bear so that you receive these promises uh, for the spiritual good that absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt will be yours in Christ Jesus. Just as sure, like all of these promises that, that have a, a certain kind of application in that day, uh, they, have an, they have the ultimate uh, uh, application in the new creation, but they have a wonderful application in our daily struggle. And I, I don't want to translate these into uh, the spiritual things that we face or the, the spiritual good God wants to do in our lives. If you would turn with me to Romans <clears throat> chapter 8, very well-known passage to many here. And if you've never heard of it, that's fine too. No big deal. We're going to look at not just, we're not going to read through the whole passage, but we are going to start with verse 28 and look at different aspects of this passage. Now, let me throw out a quandary for you that Jesus says in Luke 21. He says this, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But then listen to what he says. But not a hair of your head will perish. I'm like, um, waiting a minute here. This part about they'll put you to death sounds like a hair of my head would perish there, right? He must be talking about two different things. Must be talking about, you know, and I, I, I would make it graphic. Even if your head is taken from your body, truly, not a hair of your head will perish. That helps me, you know. Oh, okay. It's like, no matter what they do, they can't really get me. And in that sense, my, the angels will guard me. No evil will ultimately come to me. I will never be snatched away from God. I will never be separated from God, right? That's, that's, that's what's being declared to us here. And in Romans, you have this amazing paradox because he has the phrase in verse 8, all things work together for good. In verse 31, God is for us. There's nothing against us. And then he says he will freely give us all things in verse 32. And yet... 
In verse 35, we read of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Wow, sounds like you're really for us, God. You could read it that way. I, you know, I need to find a new friend who's really for me, like I want you to be for me. I'd like to define the for us here. I'd like to define the good things you're going to do for me or this all things that you're going to give to me. So this is it. You see, if you just read through this, it's like he's talking in riddles here. I would like, I would suggest to you that this section of Romans 8, including the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, etc., is a living out of the wonderful promises of Psalm 91. It's a living out of these wonderful promises because he defines the good. You can read in verse 29 and following, the good that I'm going to do in you, the good, the, the, everything working together for good is to bring you to final conformity to Jesus Christ. In his resurrection, too, because he says he's going to be the firstborn of many brethren. Born here means resurrection. He's going to be the first resurrected of many. He was the first, but there are many to come, to follow in this resurrected state in which we will enjoy his beauty. and uh, I mean, we will be beautiful like him. We'll be holy. We'll be full of love like him. And our bodies will be remade to be these new powerful Bodies, And in that sense, you see, the promises of 91 are good for us because nothing will stay God's hand. He will continually use everything toward that purpose of conforming us finally to Christ. And there's nothing that will stand in the way of that. No pestilence, no lion, no adder, no serpent, no enemy, nothing. That's why verse 31 is so precious here. That's basically saying the same thing as Psalm 91. If God is for you, who can be against you? And that's what Psalm 91 is saying. You're taking your refuge in him. Nothing's against you. You're going to defeat all your enemies. Pestilence not going to get even close to you. Saying the same thing, but the good is carefully defined, isn't it? It's that spiritual good that will finally usher in physical good. Don't think God's not concerned about your physical good. How many times have we said it? But Jesus became a human being. He took a body to rescue our bodies. As Paul stresses in 1 Corinthians 6, he redeemed your body. The Holy Spirit dwells in your body the, you're joined, your body is joined to Christ. Your body will be raised. And I love that little phrase. He is for the body. <laughs> God is pro-body. Pro-creation. So, all these things will be given to us that will continue to enable us to become like him. But that may mean in the midst that we could suffer in ways we couldn't have imagined. But the promise is there. You will know Jesus more. You'll be like Jesus more. You'll trust Jesus more. 
you'll manifest Jesus more. And he becomes so precious to us that that means everything to us. Everything. And I want to illustrate that by just one more passage. And now we're going into the slightly bizarre, the book of Revelation. Okay? Last book of the Bible, easy to find, chapter 12. This chapter is uh, kind of especially... Uh, meaningful in this way that uh, there's a statue of this lady in the Kimball where I was a docent for a couple of years and she's made of silver gilded with gold and she is the picture of the woman mentioned in verse 1 here woman clothed with the sun the moon under her feet and by the way kids if you see that little silver statue you've got to find the man in the moon he's there on the little crescent. Kind of interesting. Okay, that was free. You don't have to pay for that um, extra. But it gets down to verses 7 and following. Uh, and it's an interesting picture because it has Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the, the, the angels fought back. The dragon is defeated. There's no longer play, any place for them in heaven. And notice, the dragon was thrown down. Who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he is, as well, called the accuser of the brethren. All his angels are shown down, thrown down. Now, the whole background of this is that Satan was the accuser all through the Old Testament. You remember him accusing before Job. Some of you may remember in Zechariah 3, he's accusing Joshua, who's standing before God. He, this is his work. First, to slander God and pull us away from God, and then just to beat us and to, to constantly accuse us before God. So, he deceives us away from God, and he slanders who God is so that he will deceive us, and then he accuses us. So that we wouldn't return to God. So that we will shy away from God. And actually, Satan had a pretty good case all those years. Really good case. Because there are saints in heaven who are sinners. And what are they doing in heaven? Why are they there? So he constantly accused them. Constantly accused them. And then in his accusation, he goes after Jesus. And that's why Satan entered Judas and betrayed him and why all the accusations were brought against. You can look at the whole uh, death of Jesus as these accusations being brought against him. But what Satan couldn't realize is that Jesus was representing all of his people. And he took those accusations and he bore those accusations and he died under the wrath that that Satan was accusing the saints of deserving, and he was right. And so this picture that we have, as you see in verse 9, it talks about, uh, in verse 10 and 11, about the blood of the Lamb. So this complicated picture in Revelation of what you see in heaven with Michael fighting with the, uh, the devil and his angels is really a reflection of what Jesus is doing on earth, Okay. That's, that's a neat little two-layered conception of Revelation. 
The reason Satan is cast down is that Jesus has died. And the reason there's no more accusation in heaven is that he does not have a place anymore to accuse the brethren. Because all that time when you could have made a case, but these people, how could they be forgiven? How could they be in your presence? Now it's declared. The blood of Jesus vindicates their presence in heaven and guarantees the presence in heaven of all of God's people. So he is, as one put it, disbarred at that point. He lost his job. (laughs) He lost his position. There is no accusation. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who? Who? Who's going to accuse? Who's going to be an accuser? Nobody. All of that accusation is silenced and done for. And they know now that they have the favor of God. And this is, and this is the whole point I'm trying to get to here. It says in verse 11, they have conquered Satan, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb. This is how you live out the promises of Psalm 91. You live out that the blood of Christ has freed you from the accusation of of the enemy. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear losing your life in this world. You don't have to fear judgment. God welcomes you into his presence through the blood of his son. He has silenced the accusation for anyone who will trust in Christ. This is the shelter that was only hinted at in Psalm 91. This is the protection only hinted at in Psalm 91. The protection of the Son of God who gave his life to silence all accusation. And then, isn't it amazing? It says, not only that they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb... There in verse 11, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. King James has it. They didn't love their life all the way, even to death. Even to death. Like, you could take my life. It's fine. I belong to Jesus. I have no fear of the future. I'm forgiven. I'm in his favor There is no accusation against me. And brothers and sisters, here's one of the most important things about this. The whole book of Revelation is to teach suffering Christians that your suffering is not a sign of Satan's victory, but it's a sign of your victory over Satan. There's a paradox for you. Because it says he's cast out upon the earth and he knows his time is short And so he wreaks havoc as much as he can. When you meet satanic evil, when you meet suffering that maybe stems from evil, it is a defeated power. Christians can be assured, Beale writes, that the serpent begins to battle against their bodies only after he has lost the battle over their soul. He's lost that battle. You belong to Jesus. 
And so, brothers and sisters, we live out Psalm 91 in the shadow of refuge, in the shadow of his wings, safe and secure, God working all things together for our good. All things are given to us to continue to manifest Christ and be used by Christ and to be like Christ. But you may die in it. You may suffer loss in it. But it doesn't matter because there's no accusation against you. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You belong to him. You can let your whole life go. And you can give yourself away as God has given himself to you in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, enable us to see your beauty and your greatness in Christ Jesus. To see, Lord, what you've accomplished for us, the, the extent to which you went. Allowing these accusations all this time to demonstrate that they are shut down in a moment when Jesus' blood is shed and he is raised from the dead. And Satan is utterly unseated. He has no job anymore. There are no charges to be brought against your people. Oh, Lord, may this help us to walk in freedom. May this help us to... Be honest about our own sin in the presence of a God who loves us. May we not accuse ourselves where you don't accuse us. Yes, that we're guilty. Yes, that we've done things. But Lord, as to judgment, as to wrath, completely taken away. And there is no charge that can be brought against us. Give us, Lord, the freedom of love in that context of being the forgiven people of God, for whom there is no condemnation. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.